Let me uh, begin by saying uh, Gesundheit to anyone who might have sneezed recently. Uh, and let me say, thank you, BJ, thank you. Uh, let me say good evening and welcome to an evening with Red Fox at the Apollo Theater. Thank you for getting that reference. Uh, no, seriously, welcome to Socrates in the city. It is always a great pleasure for me to see such a large uh, group of people, uh, even though some of you are smaller than average in size. I think that uh, pound for pound, um, we're, we're hefty enough to be, uh, to be very proud indeed. So thank you for coming out on this sweltering uh, evening. It's always encouraging seeing people on a, on a hot summer night come out uh, to hear a talk like this. Um, either it's encouraging or it's kind of pathetic. I guess it depends on your point of view. Um, tonight, is this on? Tonight, uh, as you probably already know, we will be hearing from Lauren Winner, who, by the way, is the youngest person who has ever addressed Socrates in the city and who will continue to be young throughout the evening. <laughs> just for those of you who might be put off by that, I just want to let you know up front that's not going to change. Um, we, we try to get a fix, but at the end of the day, the technology just wasn't there, and I'm sorry, but uh, just want you to know that we did try. Um, Lauren has accomplished uh, an awful lot in her extremely short life. Bitterly short, really. I'm just waiting for the, for the clattering to stop. If you want to clatter, you really have to do it at home. I'm sorry. Um, no, Lauren, Lauren has accomplished an awful lot in her really monstrously short life. Um, she's written a best-selling memoir titled Girl Meets God, uh, as well as two other books. She was the book editor for BeliefNet. She's gotten degrees from Columbia and Cambridge universities, and she's currently getting her doctorate in the history of religion from the University of Virginia. In fact, I suspect that while I drone on at this platform, she's writing her dissertation in her head. But honestly, she's done an awful uh, lot. She was married uh, also a little less than two years ago. She has also written for the New York Times Book Review, for Publishers Weekly, the Washington Post, Book World, and Christianity Today. And of course, she also has a blog. Doesn't everybody have a blog now, Lauren? Is that the sort of thing that I need to mention? I'm sorry. But really, it is quite a lot to have accomplished in such a tragically short life. Um, I think it's really a pity that uh, she couldn't have spaced all of that activity and bustle over the course of a normal lifespan. But for some of us, that's, uh, that's just not the hand that we're dealt, and we have to make the best of it. So it's an extraordinary accomplishment, Lauren. Hats off to you. You're a brave woman. Um, uh, now to the Red Fox uh, reference from a few moments ago. It has to do with the fact that many of you uh, did not, in fact, receive our original email invitation because it included the word sex in the title. You know, this is true. And it was censored by many ISPs. I'm not kidding. And, of course, I'm very sorry about that. Uh, I do not believe there was any specific mention of barnyard animals. Um, LAUGHTER but, you know, our staff is so large now at Socrates in the city that a lot of those mundane graphic details tend to escape my attention. So if there was anything like that, I, uh, I want to apologize in advance. 
Uh, but yes, tonight we at Socrates in the City will be taking a look at long last at the subject of sex. Let me say a few words about why um, we felt the need to do that. Uh, first of all, I want to say that without sex, most of us would not be here today. <laughs> Always go for the cheap laugh, Chuck. And when I say we would not be here today, I, of course, I don't mean at the Colony Club. <laughs> Sexy as this place is. Um, but let me explain what we're talking about, why we're, we're talking about this tonight in all seriousness. Because Socrates in the City is dedicated to the idea, as you all know, that the unexamined life is not worth living. I did not coin that phrase. That was coined by Socrates. Um, but we've taken, we've taken it upon ourselves as Socrates in the City to ask the big questions about life. And the general categories we mean to cover are five. First, the question and nature of God. Does God exist? What would God be? God did exist. Two, the problems of evil and suffering. Three, the relationship between faith and science. Four, the question of human nature. And five, the purpose of human life. Uh, tonight's subject, sex, and what it is exactly, mostly falls under the category of four, human nature. Uh, what does it mean to be human? Who are we? How did we get here? And how should we behave while we're visiting? Right. So, uh, Lauren will be sharing a, a bit with us on this subject. She fabulously deals with this subject in her latest book titled Real Sex, The Naked Truth About Chastity. Can I say that here? I think I can. Um, I don't want to get bounced by any of these white-gloved matrons that you see uh, going in and out. But I did, I read uh, Lauren's book, and I thought if ever there was something that needed thoughtful discourse, it was this, uh, in general. And there's very little thoughtful, there's a lot of discourse on sex, but precious little thoughtful discourse. And I'm thinking specifically of a couple of friends of mine. Um, <laughs> and so, so here we are tonight at the uh, Super Sexy Colony Club. Uh, and uh, our format, as most of you would guess who've been here before, is the same uh, as always. Our speaker, Lauren, in this case, will speak for about 35 or 40 minutes, and then we will have about 35 or so minutes of Q&A, and we promise to finish promptly before uh, about 8.25 or 8.30. I want to say a couple of quick things uh, in case some of you have to leave. There are brochures. This is basically unrelated Socrates in the city, but there's something called Oxbridge Conference. It's a C.S. Lewis conference. Um, no connection to Socrates in the city except for the fact that in many ways the idea of Socrates in the city was born out of my time at Oxbridge. It's a two-week conference, uh, one week in Oxford, one week in Cambridge. I think that is up to two. Uh, and it's uh, the last week of July and the first week of August. And half of the speakers end up being Socrates in the city speakers. Um, uh, and, and whenever I go there, I meet other people that I say, you've got to speak at Socrates in the city. But it's a just one of the most fabulous, magical things I've ever done. My wife and I were there in 98 for the centenary celebration of Lewis's birth. I believe it's pronounced centenary. Um, we were there in 2002, and again, this year, uh, I will be there. But, but grab a brochure. I think that there are piles of them in that room, and there should be a poster in that room. But I just want to say that if you like what we do here, you would probably eat this up with a, uh, with a spoon. So, um, so grab this. I also want to say that... Um, we're probably not having another uh, Socrates in the City speaking event until September, I believe, is our, is our next event. But we're having a non-speaking event. I think some of you got the, the web uh, email. Actually, no, we haven't sent it out yet. I think in the next day or so, you'll be getting an email about a Socrates in the City concert that we're going to be having July 14th. 
uh, very, very exciting. Sue Song, our pianist, and uh, one of the world's most famous flutists or flautists, depending on where you're from or how pretentious you are, uh, will be joining Sue. <laughs> That's going to be a very, very exciting uh, evening. And if you're good, I won't show up. So um, please be looking for that um, uh, in your email. I think that is it. I also want to say that uh, Sue's uh, videos, uh, I'm sorry, CDs are available. And we also have a rather large selection of Sakti's in the city, an increasingly large selection of Sakti's in the city CDs. If you've missed previous talks, we're doing better about that. And of course, tons of books at our book table. Um, anyway. I will stop there. So without any further ado, let me introduce the tragically young Lauren Winner. Oh, there's a clock here. I had my cell phone to be a clock. Um, let me make sure the ringer's off. I, uh, I was going to call you. Yeah. I don't... Um, I don't use my cell phone usually on Sundays. It's one of my attempts to have a Sabbath and kind of break out of the sense that people can get a hold of me whenever they want to all the time. Um, but on Easter Sunday a year and a half ago, I wanted to call my aunt after church and wish her happy Easter. So I, I brought my cell phone to church. And I go to an Episcopal church in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I live, that until a few years ago when it experienced something of a a spiritual renewal. It was known uh, primarily as Farmington Country Club at prayer. And I was at the 11 o'clock service this Easter, um, which is the more well-heeled, blue-haired, really blue-coiffed, well-heeled, blue-coiffed service. And um, I was serving at the altar as a, as a lay chalicer, the lay person who offers the wine during the service of Holy Communion. And so I was up at the altar the whole service and had left my jacket and my purse and whatnot in the, in the pew with my friend Melville. And as my priest stood up to preach, it suddenly occurred to me that my cell phone was not only in my purse, but that it was on. And I began to pray fervently at that moment that if God were, in fact, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent, that my cell phone would not ring which it didn't until about three-quarters of the way through the service. And then it began to ring. And it was said at that time to play the minute waltz. Um, later, my friend Ken Myers, whom some of you may know from the Mars Hill audio tapes that he does, he was at this church as well, and he later said, well, Lauren, it's a good thing you didn't have it set to play Wild Thing. <laughs> so, now I don't even need the clock. I have a clock right here. Um, it's very hard to follow Eric. He's much funnier than any of the rest of us. And I have to say this, this thing about being so young, I'm getting very anxious about it because I'm 28, so I have about a year and a half until I'm 30. And my thought is basically that at 30, you stop being precocious. There's very little you do precociously at 30 other than perhaps die. And I've been told so often that I've been precocious that I fear that once I turn 30, no one will like me anymore, think I have any good qualities, because I'll just be ordinary. Anyway, that may have been more than you needed to know about me. Um, so our topic tonight, as Eric said, is sex. You know, I sort of disagree with him when he sketched out these five categories of the Socrates in the city themes. He located sex as being primarily in the question of human nature. 
I would say that it is at least also in category five, which is the purpose of human life. Um, anyway, I thought it was interesting that you put it in human nature. Thank you. I like being right. Um, so why are we here talking about sex? Um, I mentioned to a friend in Virginia that I was coming up this week to be with, with Socrates in the city, and, and I said I was you know, doing a sex talk, and my friend said, you're talking about sex at Socrates in the city? First of all, he was like, you? And he sort of reeled off these other famous people who'd been here before, and then he said, don't people speak about like suffering, you know, theodicy, but you're talking about sex. So I thought I should begin by saying um, why we're talking about sex. Um, And the short answer is that we are talking about sex because everyone else is. So perhaps that's something of a defensive posture. Um, But sex talk, as we know, is is all around us. Uh, It is ambient. It is it is uh, in every magazine we pick up and every advertisement we see. Um, now, some cultural critics sort of decry the, the ubiquity of, of sex talk in our contemporary society. They say that, you know, we should return to a public sphere that's a little more sanitized. There's a little less taking it all off in public. Um, I want to say that I think it's actually a good thing that we talk about sex. Um, it is better, I think, to have a lot of sex talk than to have none, because sex is pretty important, and it, the erotic is always at play, and we need to give some thought communally as to how to live into that. Um, so for me, the problem is not that we talk about sex so much. It's rather how we talk about it. It's what we say about sex. Um, I think that this matters because much of what we say in our surrounding popular culture about sex is false. Much of what we're doing is telling lies. Um, And that matters because when we tell lies about sex and when we hear lies about sex, we begin to inhabit and practice and live lies or falsehoods about sex. Now, here in this room, I am guessing... Um, are a lot of different views about sexuality. Probably if I took a survey, we wouldn't all hold identical perspectives on what sex is about and where it belongs. So I want to just be straightforward about my own perspective. Um, My own understanding of sexuality is very much conditioned by um, classical Christianity. And it is my understanding that in a classical Christian moral vocabulary, Um, sex was made for marriage, and try as I did during my many single years to find a good way of defending having sex outside of marriage, um, I couldn't come up with with a defense for sex outside of marriage that was consonant with classical Christianity. Um, Now, just to give you a little bit more of my own autobiography so that you know where I'm coming from, um, they say that you people preach the sermon they need to hear Um, I think I probably wrote the book that I needed to read in writing this book about sex. Um, This has been an issue, the place of sexuality, has been an issue that I very much struggled with in my treacherously short life. Um, Tragically. Tragically. Tragically short life, not treacherously. Thanks. Good correction. Um, I became a Christian at the end of college, 
and had had plenty of premarital sex in college. Um, now, you're, you're expecting that I'm going to say, and then I became a Christian and I stopped having premarital sex. You would be wrong if you expected that. Um, and it would indicate to me that you've never read anything I've written. Um, people sometimes say, like, oh, you've, this is, you've written the second volume of your memoirs. And I say, no, if I'd written a memoir about chastity, the book would be even shorter than it is. Um, so I became a Christian, and many well-meaning persons in my church um, invited me to lectures, much like this one, or gave me books or audio cassette tapes or whatever, purporting to, to sort of lay out the biblical vision of sexuality. Um, I, I ignored most of them because I didn't want to know, right? Like I secretly guessed that the, the biblical message was that I needed to stop having sex, and I didn't, didn't really want to go there. Um, or not go there, as the case may be. And then when I did begin to sit with these books and lectures and so forth, um, I found that many of them seemed like they were written for the 19th century. They seemed very out of touch with the contemporary culture that I was um, very much in, engaged with. So it took me many years uh, to, to get on board with the Christian teaching of reserving sex for marriage. Um, so I don't come to this topic from a place of sort of sanctimonious um, pride, I hope. I, I come to it precisely because it, it's been a very live issue. It's a live issue for me. Before I was married, it continues to be an, a live uh, issue for me as a, as a wife. Um, I think that whether or not one personally is a Christian, this Christian perspective on sex deserves a hearing. Um, obviously, the, the idea of reserving sex for marriage was the traditional belief in our society until about the 1960s, um, not only because most people in America were sort of culturally Protestant, but also because people didn't want to get pregnant outside of marriage. And as we know, it was in large part the advent of birth control um, in the 1950s and 1960s that was one piece of the so-called sexual revolution that, that challenged very radically the traditional teachings about sex and marriage. And actually, when you think about it, I mean, we're so... Um, the sexual revolution has been such a success in terms of disseminating widely the idea that really you can have sex whenever you want to as long as it's consensual, that I think it's even hard for us to, to remember what a dramatic historical change this was, that in, in the space of four decades, um, a, a social understanding that had reigned for centuries has, has really been routed. Um, now, what I want to suggest in my re remaining moments with you tonight is that the culture of the sexual revolution has affected all of us, uh, I would say in deleterious ways. Um, specifically, the culture of premarital sex, I think, has affected even those of us who haven't had premarital sex. Um, and just as an exercise, I just want you to think. Think about the phrase, good sex. And think about what adjectives come to mind when you think about it. And then I want you to think about the phrase married sex and think about the adjectives that come to mind when you think about that phrase, married sex. Um, 
I might ask you, who has the better sex life, a, a married mother of two or, you know, Bridget Jones? Um, now, because we are here in this august institution, I'm not going to cold call anyone and ask them to share the adjectives that came to mind. Um, but I'll just guess that when you thought about the phrase good sex, you might have thought, well, that's frequent. It's surprising. It's, you know, it's sexy. And I would guess that when you thought about married sex, um, by contrast, frequent was probably not the first word that came to mind, um, that you probably thought routine. You might have thought more trouble than it's worth. You might have thought habitual. Someone over there clearly thought habitual. <laughs> I want to suggest that po our surrounding popular culture has enshrined a particular understanding of what good sex is. Our popular culture tells us um, that good sex is the sex that has all of those adjectives um, that we associate with premarital sex. Good sex is exciting. It derives much of its thrill in part from the unknown. Um, th and that's what premarital sex is like. Premarital sex, I mean, let's face it, it, premarital sex may be bad for us and destructive, but it can also be fun. You know, we might enjoy it. And what do we enjoy about it? Well, we enjoy the thrills, the kind of game playing, the will here, won't he be there in the morning. Um, it's new. It's always new. Marital sex is the opposite of those adjectives. Uh, marital sex derives its particular goodness and its particular breed of excitement precisely because it's not always new and it's not constantly unknown. And you are not, in fact, worrying whether she will or will not be there in the morning. Um, it is that ordinariness and that certitude that opens up space um, for sex to be more than just two individual people getting their physical needs met on a random evening. When women's magazine, men's magazines too, but women's magazines in particular, um, write sex articles, and every issue of Cosmo and Elle and Vogue, etc., every issue has an article giving advice to married women about how to spice up their sex life. Um, what those articles tell married people to do is to make their marriages look as much like dating relationships as possible. They say to have a better sex life, you know, send your kids to the grandparents, go to a and b for the weekend, um, break out the new and sexy lingerie, make your marriage look as much like what you remember from your dating life or as much like what you see on Sex in the City as possible. Think about how we see sex portrayed in movies. Um, I would challenge you to come up with very many popular movies that portray sex between a husband and wife at all. There aren't very many of them. Um, most movies portray sex between unmarried people, or at least people who are not married to each other. They may be married to someone else. Um, and even when they do portray sex between a husband and wife, it is never ordinary. It's never sex that gets interrupted because your kid comes to 
tell you that he's had a bad dream or thrown up or whatever. It's never sex that was preceded by an argument about why she bought another pair of black shoes with your hard-earned money. Um, it's never sex that anticipates the fact that you're going to have to get up at 6 in the morning to make sandwiches for your children's lunches. It is wholly unordinary. It is sex that looks as much like the meaningless coupling of people who don't share a real domestic life together as possible. And I want to suggest that we have all been formed by this expectation that what good sex is is the sex that dating people have and not the sex that married people have. Um, I think even those of us in the church who have forsworn premarital sex and marry as virgins, even, even those people have been shaped by the cultural expectations of what real sex is. Um, I see this borne out uh, in popular culture all the time, but I also see it borne out in my own experience. Eric said I've been married for about a year and a half. And... You know, frankly, I thought I'd sort of dealt with this issue in my life because I'd, I'd stopped having sex well before I met my now husband and I'd done my repenting and started writing this book and whatever. And I see, I see now being married for a year and a half uh, that I'm far from, from done, that I learned certain, um, certain stories from having had premarital sex all through college and in my early 20s. I learned that what's exciting and erotic about sex is this newness and this sort of uncertainty. And that um, is something I'm having to work to unlearn in my marriage because, of course, what's, what's wonderful about married sex is the, the ordinariness. It's not the uncertainty. But I'm, if you will, having to learn that fidelity is sexy, that, that the ordinary can be sexy. Thomas Bridenthal, some of you may know, is a Christian ethicist who used to teach at General Seminary here in New York, and he is now the dean of the chapel at Princeton University. He wrote once um, that if those of us in the church want to reintroduce sexual Christian sexual ethics to our larger post-sexual revolution society, if we want to um, offer the Christian story about sexuality to the broader society, we can't just proclaim uh, a list of do's and don'ts. Don't have sex outside of marriage. You know, do be faithful to your spouse. Uh, we instead must present the Christian story of sexuality as the good news that it is. Um, and I think this question of the culture of premarital sex versus what happens in ordinary, regular marriages is a case in point uh, for Tom Bridenthal. Um, the Christian idea that God created sex for marriage is not, I think, just an abstract teaching. It's not just that St. Paul was a first century killjoy. Um, it's not just an, an arbitrary rule, like your family always has meatloaf on Tuesdays. It, it is rather a whole geography. And it invites us, all of us, to reconsider what good sex, uh, what real sex looks like. Um, and I say it's a geography because it invites us to consider where real sex happens. And if we say that the realest sex happens in marriages, then we're invited to reconsider what, what good sex looks like. Maybe the best kind of sex is actually the most ordinary, habitual kind of sex. Um, 
people get very freaked out when I talk about sex being routine. I, I speak very often at Christian colleges to young students who are determined to remain virgins until they're married, and they generally like what I have to say until I get to the point of saying, when you do get married and have sex, it's going to be, in many ways, pretty ordinary. You can see their face sort of fall. They think, you mean I'm, I'm struggling and waiting and holding out, and you're telling me I'm not going to have Billy Bob Thornton and Halle Berry in the Monsters Ball every night? You know, I'm not going to be swinging from the chandeliers all the time? So if you don't like the word routine, um, try the word ritual or liturgy or think of a dance and how much more beautiful a dance can be when it is choreographed and rehearsed and danced over and over, not when it is always reinvented. Um, I want to conclude my remarks by reading a short excerpt from a novel that I quote in my book, this is a novel by Alexandra Marshall. It's called The Court of Common Pleas, and I, I'm a real bookworm. And I, it was just one of those great experiences for me where I was in a used bookstore, and I just sort of stumbled on this novel. I'd never heard of Alexandra Marshall. I hadn't heard of this particular novel, and like I thought the cover was cool. And so breaking that old rule of not judging a book by its cover, I bought the book. And it's a remarkable book about marriage. Um, the protagonists are Gregory and Audrey. They are a somewhat restrained middle-aged couple living in, of all places, the exciting state of Ohio. And Gregory is about 20, 25 years older than Audrey. He is a judge, and he has reached, he wants to take early retirement. Audrey, who's like in her 40s, and I guess he's 60, Audrey has decided that she wants to go to medical school. She's been a stay-at-home mom, and her kids are grown, and she's applied to medical school and gotten in. And this causes, this conflict of sort of desire and expectation really threatens to undo their whole marriage. And that's really what the book is about. So there's a scene in the, in the book where they have a big argument. And after they have the big conflagration, they kind of calm down a little, they speak calmly, they take a shower, and then they have sex. And I just want to read you the description of the lovemaking that they experience after this argument. And now it was an advantage that Gregory had come of age in the generation that contented itself with being good. Audrey was in no danger of being overwhelmed by a lust encrusted with the aspects of performance. Comfort food, they called this function of lovemaking, not because it was bland, but because, like meatloaf and mashed potatoes, like macaroni and cheese, their associations enlarged the experience. That passage captures for me um, what marital sex can be when we allow it to be ordinary and not encrusted with the aspects of performance. Um, and it is the appreciation of that ordinariness that I think our culture of premarital sex um, unfits us for. And it's what I'm having to learn, what I suspect a lot of us are having to learn. So I'm going to stop there and invite comments, questions. You don't have to applaud. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. You're welcome, Eric. The walls are blushing. Um, we now have time for Q&A, and you're going to need to watch your language, people. 
Um, no, uh, say, uh, say whatever you'd like to say, but we, um, this is my favorite part of, uh, of Socrates and City is the Q&A. So it, we just have the one microphone there. Okay, so if you want to ask a question, it would behoove you to, uh, to go up to that um, microphone. And, oh, Greg will play Phil. Okay. Uh, thank you, Greg. That's our executive director of Socrates and City and a fine job he's done. Yes, absolutely. If, uh, if anything seems organized, you can thank Greg and Justin, who, who are in the back and have done a fabulous job. But um, uh, yes, so if you have a question, raise your hand and uh, or, go or go to the mic. I think, uh, don't be shy. Okay. Lauren. Sir. Um, I've been a minister for over almost 30 years. Every year, 30 years, several times I get this question from teenagers. If I go ahead and have sex and be active like all my friends, won't God forgive me? And of course, we know that he will. How do you answer that and say, why shouldn't I do that then? Yeah, I think that's a, an extremely important question that the church is not answering particularly well. Um, I think we sometimes err in the church on saying, no, he won't forgive you. There's a lot of rhetoric in Christian speeches, sermons, published materials uh, that says sex is the unforgivable sin. Um, when I was working on my book, I, uh, I started keeping track of this language, and I found that the two most common sort of metaphors uh, were ghosts and scars, that if you had premarital sex, your the ghosts of your previous lovers would sort of hover about your wedding canopy, or that you would be scarred forever. Um, obviously, that's, that's, as you say, a very unbiblical message because um, Jesus' blood is, is more powerful than, than any of our sins. Um, so I think we absolutely have to, have to proclaim that message of forgiveness. But I would say that we then need to say two other things. And these are not things that necessarily can be said in a one-off conversation. And, and this is, when I speak, it's so pres- <laughs> One of the many presumptions of my career is that I'm sometimes asked to speak to parents' groups about, like, sex and their teenagers. I don't have kids. I mean, I'm, you know, what do I know? But one of the things I say to these parents' groups um, is that this can't be addressed in a one-off conversation, um, that it has to be a constant narrative, and it has to start, I think, very early because um, the advertisers and the Britney Spearses and whomever else are starting very early and are targeting not just about sex, also I think about consumerism and money, targeting children very early. So I think we, the, both of us, those those with kids, but also those of us in communities and, and friends w- with children really need to, to start very early. And I think what we need ideally to be forming those kids into is not just an understanding that if you have premarital sex, you might get an STD or something. But rather, an understanding that everything we do forms us. And that there's, no, there's just no neutral way of, of going through a day in this world. There's no neutral way of being a person who is embodied. There's no neutral way of interacting with credit cards. There's no neutral way of um, interacting with our families. And that that whenever we undertake a, a significant um, behavior like having sex or like racking up credit card debt or what have you, uh, we're teaching, we're forming ourselves in certain stories. 
And so when I work with youth groups, the question I, because the question I, well, at colleges, the question I get is, I'm committed to being a virgin. How far is too far? How far can I go with my boyfriend and still be faithful? And I want to suggest that that's not the best question. <laughs> that, that the question is, you know, how, how am I loving my neighbor? Um, what, what lessons am I learning from this? What stories am I teaching myself to inhabit? Uh, and that, I think, goes very, very much hand-in-hand hand with the message of forgiveness. Because it's not that you can never unlearn these lessons, um, but it does take time. I mean, I, uh, I play the cello, and um, my first cello teacher was wonderful in many ways, but taught me to hold my bow incorrectly. My pinky was in the wrong place. And eventually this teacher left town, and I had a new teacher, and that teacher immediately got to work recorrecting my bow hold. Um, it took a lot of time. When I would get lazy, the old bow hold would sort of naturally take over. But after enough in, intentional reforming of my hand, I pretty much, the old bow hold is pretty much gone now. And I pretty much have learned this new way. And I think that that's sort of how the formation, the formative power of sin works. I mean, we do teach ourselves um, false stories through destructive behavior. Um, and they stick with us, but they are not unforgivable. Does that answer your question? Sort of. My question's more of a generic nature. I was wondering, if this is the first uh, meeting that I've had been at where we got a notice that we were sold out for reservations. But my question is really, are you, this is the first speaker on a topic such as this, Eric, you said. So my question was, were there other women speakers and what did they speak on? It's, it's really to both of you, because Lauren, Lauren might have asked that question when she was coming to speak tonight. Don't give this woman the microphone again, please. No. Um, you see, uh, I'm sorry, but the, but the idea of the Q&A is really to ask Lauren questions. I'm kidding. Um, uh, we have had other women speakers, and have they they've been... Uh, a tenth as as ribald as uh, as my dear sister here absolutely not um, we've had we had Frederica Matthews Green who spoke on Eastern modes of spirituality and her books are over there they're great and, and her books are at the table Fantastic. and uh, Mary Ann Glendon is on the list you're asking me to be an archivist but um, see me privately uh, see me privately later I, I, what am I doing with this we have a question here yes I believe the woman in the in the back was waiting uh, longer so let me. I will say, while Greg's taking the mic over there for my ribaldness in defense of myself, I think one of the real problems is that we, we either speak about sex in to, with totally taking it all off or we speak about it with total euphemism. And I don't think that either of those is the best way to go. Yes. I appreciate your perspective on um, the contrast between sex before marriage and sex after marriage. I wondered if you had, and I apologize, I haven't read your book yet, but I look forward to it. Do you have a perspective in the book about the spiritual nature of sex in marriage? And did you interview any people who had been married for a long time who didn't necessarily look at sex in that ordinary mode that you have suggested, which I think is a great perspective to look at because it's so uh, real. But I also wondered what your views were on the spiritual nature of this 
holy union yep. that God has obviously set apart for marriage for yep. a specific spiritual reason. Yeah. yeah. No, and that's a great question. Um, and I think you're, you're right on when you say God has set it apart for a spiritual reason. I think often we tend to sort of say he set it apart for pragmatic reasons, i.e. so that people won't have babies out of wedlock or something. And I think it's, it's more than that. To me, the ordinariness goes hand in hand with that, with that spiritual purpose. Um, when I speak of ordinary, I don't mean banal. I simply mean, um, Again, I love the phrase from this novel, not encrusted with the aspects of performance. And I think it's precisely in that um, ordinariness, if you will, that some of those spiritual meanings can, can emerge. Um, and I, I would say that scripture is very clear, particularly the New Testament, that the marriage union, um, the Bible uses marriage a lot as a metaphor or an analogy to tell us something about God's relationship to us. And um, sex, obviously, is, is a part of that. Um, I don't mean to say that unmarried people can't enter into an equally intimate relationship with God or have, have equally profound spiritual experiences, because I do think that, that unmarried people certainly can. Um, but so to me, that spiritual... I, I, and I do discuss this a little bit in the book. I would say that one of the, the reasons that the church has historically given for why we have sex at all in marriage um, is the the so-called sacramental reason. That is that the act of having sex with your spouse um, sort of puts you back into and reseals and rearticulates the kind of crazy promises that not only did you and your spouse make to each other when you got married, but that God made to you as well. And there's something mysterious, even St. Paul says it's a mystery that we can't quite articulate, um, about radical fidelity that I think unfolds in in marital sex that we just don't we can't see in in sort of sex in the city sex. Um, so to me, that spiritual aspect goes very much hand. It's it's the ordinariness that sort of opens the space for that spiritual reality to to become known. I run. I, yeah. I think it's ironic that of all the things that we can attribute uh, God thinking of, it is the relationship of sex one to another. And um, the thing that I see over and over again that I've experienced myself, but also that I see as a chaplain and as ministering to people, is my sense is, and I'm asking you about how we in the 21st century can... Um, teach people in terms of relationships and marriage that are ones in which we, as we love one another, we cherish one another, we respect one another. And to me, what I see when people are advertising on the trains and planes and buses is there's no respect for themselves. There's no respect for a relationship. It's a one-night stand or whatever. Um, it's a deeper question, we reflect um, yeah. how we feel about one another, and I just think it's so vital to understand how important yeah. it is. I want to respond to that with sort of two examples from our popular culture. Um, one, sort of a, a very concrete illustration of that lack of respect and how early that formation starts. I've been paying... Is that the minute 
I've been paying a lot of, t- of attention lately to um, girls' clothing and noticing that if you have a lot of money and you can go to Hannah Anderson or Nordstrom's, you can still buy for your eight-year-old kind of tradi- traditional girls' clothing. If you shop at Old Navy or Target or The Gap or whatever, um, much girls' clothing is very tawdry at a very early age. Um, why you would design hip huggers for a child who is not going to have hips for another decade is a little beyond me. Um, and so that is an instance of we are already forming also boys, but I think more so in this instance of fashion girls, we're already forming at a very early age a, a sort of cavalier disrespect for their bodies. Um, on this sort of larger relational point, um, I think that is related to the question of sort of forming yourself in, in notions of like premarital sex is the good sex. I think that same thing can happen emotionally. Um, I recently watched this movie with Ed Harris that came out a few years ago, I think called The Third Miracle, in which Ed Harris uh, plays this Catholic priest who's ha- lost his faith or has having a ba- a battles of doubts. And his job in the, in the diocese is to authenticate or de-authenticate miracles. And so he's, he's called by his, his bishop to go authenticate a miracle. Well, there's a, a little bit of a love interest in, in this story. Part of his doubt is manifested by the fact that he gets a little romantically involved um, with the daughter of the supposed saint whose miracles he's authenticating. And there's this scene, and there's all this tension, and there's this scene where they finally kiss, and then in the next scene he comes to her the next day and says, look, I just I can't do this, and... I am a priest, and there was. I'm sorry that I've hurt you, and and I watched this movie, and I was for like ten minutes so distraught that I was never going to get to experience that again. The kind of the excitement, the emotional excitement of the first kiss, and there's a reason also that there are a lot of first kisses in movies and not a lot of third or fourth kisses, right? It's it's cinematic, it's narrative, and the story ends. And I just thought, like, oh, I'm never going to get to have this, like, romance. I mean, my husband and I don't have romance. We love each other, but, like, ro- we don't have that kind of exciting Ed Harris romance. And then, sir, ten minutes later comes the scene where she's just heartbroken, just devastated, because he's saying, I can't do this. And I, I turned to my friend and I said, well, maybe I won't ever have to experience that again either. Um, so I think there is a parallel to be drawn between sort of how we train ourselves emotionally I'm not opposed to dating. I think dating is great. But I dated a lot of people. I had a lot of very emotionally intense relationships. And I think I trained myself to think that, like, what's good about this is the emotional frisson. And then, so again, one of the things that I think a lot of us in this day and age have to learn, particularly people who marry later, is, well, that lasts in your marriage for a month or a year or two years or whatever, if you're lucky. And, and then actually the work, the good work of actually having a relationship with someone and loving your neighbor starts. Very easy to love your neighbor when you're infatuated with him. Uh, when you just really want his hair out of your shower, it's a little bit harder. Um, so to me, there's an analogy between the sort of sexual formation and the emotional formation. Um, I, I was uh, impressed on your... Uh, explanation, your experience of the church's uh, definition of of sex and marriage, 
And it's interesting that you come from an Episcopal background. I must say that in my Roman Catholic education some 30 years ago in nursing school, the scientific definition I received of sex and the only purpose of human sexuality was for the purpose of procreation. And that's something I never forgot. I really wanted to raise my hand and object. I was in the era of the sexual revolution just happening, and I thought, I'm never marrying anyway, so for me, I don't care, but how can all my classmates, who I know will be married, sit and listen to this and put up with it? And I felt, coming from a large family, that there's another purpose, and I wanted to raise my hand, but I was hushed. No, no further discussion about that. So this brings back some memories. But I guess my question is, is there a place for the non-married person um, and a whole discussion of a non-physical sexuality. I think that this, do you address that in your book? And is there more to say about sexuality for those who aren't married? Yeah, I think you actually raised two great questions. One um, is the question of procreation, as, as what place does procreation play in, in sort of the rationale, if you will, for sex? And the other is sexuality and the, the non-married person. I, I would say... Um, that while the Christian moral landscape um, doesn't have room for a non-married person to have sex, that does not mean um, that, that non-married people are supposed to deny that, that they are sexual persons. Um, it seems to me that from the Genesis story of creation, it's very clear that we were created with bodies. We might not have been. We could have just been created as souls or something. We were created also with impulses towards connectivity and relationship. Um, the the non-married sexuality question usually gets parsed in one of two ways. I get asked this question a lot. Either the person's really asking about masturbation, or the person is asking something that is, wants something like, just, you know, take a bubble bath and drink a glass of Chardonnay and you will, you know, remember that you're a sensual person. Well, I like bubble baths as much as the next person, but I mean, who are we kidding? Um, it's not really adequate to the task, as it were. Um, my understanding is that there absolutely is room for non-married people to to inhabit their bodies well and be sensual and sexual people. And that that, <clears throat> you know, we live in a society right now that is so litigious that very ordinary, common, non-erotic physical touch is, is sort of not um, commonplace. I, I heard a priest once who t teaches, as also an English professor, uh, an Episcopal priest, and she said, you know, I have students whom I, like, who need hugs and I can't hug them because I will be slapped with a lawsuit. Um, now, I'm all for preventing, you know, sexual harassment in the workplace, but it seems that we have come to a place where ca casual physical interactions between people are, are not valued in our society, and I think we need to recover them. Um, I would also say, though, that I don't think there's an, in the Christian grammar, I don't think there's an easy out. I mean, I've looked for it. I, I don't think there's like a magic rabbit to pull out of the hat that says, this is how you can sort of be fully, happily sexual. Now, I think a few of us are called and gifted to lifelong celibacy and, and may have that actually spiritual gift. But for most of us who are unmarried and may want to be married or may not, and, and we're wrestling with our sexuality, I think this is 
one of the costly aspects of Christian discipleship. I mean, I think there's suffering, and I and it's hard. Um, just as as there's suffering in faithful marital sexuality, um, both not having sex with other people when you might want to, and also sometimes having sex with your spouse when you don't really feel like it, but it's the thing that you need to do. So while I want to say, yes, there's absolutely a place for the expression of sensuality, I don't think um, there's a, a hat. A, a hat with a rabbit in it. The, the second or really first question about procreation I think is an important one. Um, my understanding is that Christian tradition has historically offered at least three reasons for sex, and procreation is one of them. This thing that I mentioned earlier about sacramental, sort of recalling the relationship to God is another. Um, and then the so-called unitive purpose, that sex unites uh, spouses together. And I do think... Um, I, I have, I'm still sort of rethinking this, but I, I think as a culture, we need to give some thought to what I would describe as the culture of contraception. Um, I am not a Roman Catholic. I do not share the, the current Roman Catholic position of, of no artificial birth control. But I do think that birth control has had, not only obviously has it made it very easy to have premarital sex, I think even in marital sex, birth control has... Um, affected a very subtle but profound shift, and it's a shift that has something to do with control. I have chronic insomnia, and I woke up one night a year ago and thought, well, I'm committed to giving a talk in Baylor, Texas, in uh, Waco, Texas, in April, you know, 2009. Therefore, I could get pregnant during these months, but not these other months. And I, I had enough sense to realize that I was like going crazy, that this was not the way, the last thing you should try to think of as something that you can control, order, and manage is having children. Um, and while I feel that there is a judicious way to use birth control as Christians, I think we need to think about what the impact of birth control has been on our society in terms of how we think about children, in terms of how we want our households to be, whether our households are places that are sort of open to chaos um, or whether they're households that we want to sort of order and manage. Um, those are questions that I'm just starting to think about, but I think they're significant ones. Yes. I would like to ask you, I really believe in the church position, but the way it is handled is the wrong way. You just mentioned about marital sex, for example, and you mentioned how it's the ordinary, it's routine, and those poor kids who are anxious to be virgins, and you tell them it's going to be ordinary, and they get scared. Don't you think that the idea of pushing premarital sex is the cause for boredom, is the cause for unhappiness in marriage? If we always feed our instincts, whether it's food we eat, drink, we, uh, if we're thirsty, we drink, and whatever. And let's keep sex just, just later. And then, when you come to marriage, everything will be so lovely and so exciting. But to begin at the age of 13, they are doing a disservice to themselves, let alone the contraceptives, whatever you want to call it. I think... Kids at this young age are boring their sex life to death, whether it's with premarital every day, a new face, or the same face every night. And you talked about lack of frequency of marriage, uh, of sex in marriage. I think this is also an advantage, 
because frequency, if you eat an apple every day, whether it's red, yellow, or green, it, you're going to, uh, excuse my language, do something that's not pleasant. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I think uh, the best way is to tell those kids the church message is that you save yourself to enjoy sex, not to be bored at the end. Um, I, th I don't disagree, per se, with anything you just said. I, I do think in an age where people get married later and later, um, that how we talk to a 14-year-old is going to have to be different. The core message, I think, is the same. But, but what we say to a 30-year-old who is not married is going to be different than how we talk to a 15-year-old. But I th I'm reminded um, by your point of an article I read a couple of years ago in New York Magazine about internet pornography and um, how very widespread internet pornography is. And in fact, we used to think that women didn't use porn a lot. Well, the internet porn seems to have changed that. It, it seems clear now that women purchased less pornography because they there were some social constraints that prevented them from going into adult bookstores and buying it. But now that you can do your porn in the privacy of your own home, um, it seems to be women, men, pastors, lay people, whatever, are, are using a lot of pornography. And one of the articles I read, and I, actually I think I quoted in the book, um, talked about how um, porn used to be about creating like lousy approximations of real people's bodies, and now the balance has, has flipped. Um, and that people don't really want to have sex with their spouses anymore because they've been having internet sex with like a perfect computerized being that doesn't, you know, argue with them, um, that doesn't ever say they have a headache, and uh, that has this perfect physique and so forth. So I, I think that's another component. It's not just 13-year-olds having sex, which obviously is a deeply sad reality, but I think also... Um, the pervasiveness of, of pornography now with the internet that porn sort of comes into our homes unbidden almost uh, is another another factor. Was there a question back here? And I, I forgot to say earlier to f uh, frame your questions in the form of a question. <laughs> I, always, I, always, I always mean Pretend to say you're that. you're on Jeopardy. Right. Okay, I'll do my best to do that as well. It's more of a, a statement, but wanting you to expound upon it, but it is a question. It is a question, of course. Um, what I would like for you to expound upon a little bit is um, the yearning of sex, more its power as far as um, for the power that, um, of wholeness, of unity, um, which you did mention actually as um, one of the three elements of unity, but that is a very important part as far as creatures, you know, how we were created. So if you could just expound upon that for me, that'd be great. Thank you. Yeah, I, absolutely. Part of what we desire when we desire sex is that pr profound connection with another person. Um, and I believe, you know, we're, we're all, as, as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they come to rest in you, that we are ultimately longing for that union with God. Um, often when I'm addressing church groups, I don't emphasize that piece as much because... I find that in the church, we often emphasize that to the exclusion of actually talking about just physical 
desire, and particularly women. The church still maintains, in sort of popular Christian books about sex and so forth, um, maintains this idea that men want to have sex all the time and that women just don't really, women don't really have libidos, women don't really feel sexual desire. Um, and I find that a very, um, or that women are only desiring that emotional connection. Men sort of want to make the beast with two backs and women are just longing for sort of emotional fulfillment. Now, I don't think you have to say that men and women are identical or something to, to, to say that that's not a help. I find that not to be a helpful way of, of framing women's sexuality. It may be that women have more frequently articulate the emotional piece. But first of all, I don't think it serves men very well to say like men are these uncontrollable horny beasts who don't have emotions and, and women, you know, they just want to have sex and women are these angels who don't have bodies. Doesn't serve men very well and kind of lets them off the hook. You know, women then have to sort of control everything because men can't control themselves. Um, but I think it's also not helpful to women. I, I think it's not helpful to unmarried women, teenage girls and adult women, to say, you know, don't worry about it. You just have to worry about fending off the walking bundle of hormones who's taking you on a date. But you don't have to worry about disciplining your own desires. That's not helpful when, in fact, the woman will have her own desires that she needs to discipline. And then nor, I think, is it helpful when women get married. Um, because then when you are in a space where you can live into that physical desire, I think women more often than men bear the brunt of, of guilt or um, shame that maybe they shouldn't be enjoying sex as much as they are. Um, so I totally agree that that yearning is not just you know biological, it is, it is also emotional and spiritual. Um, but I think we sort of need to articulate all of those pieces all the time and never emphasize really one to the wholehearted exclusion of the other. I have two questions. Uh, the first one being, would you agree or disagree with this? And you can answer this after you, after I ask the second question. Today, <laughs> today sex is sport. It's recreation. There's no dignity. There's no respect. That's number one. Would you agree or disagree? The other question is, um, I was a youth pastor for about 18 years, and the ministry was always very preventative. I was very frank about sexuality, dealt with homosexuality, with premarriage sexuality. And now as a, as a guy who's starting a church and coming up with a lot of people, uh, some Christians, some not Christians, but people in their 20s and 30s, who are frankly boinking like jackrabbits, whether or not they're Christian or not, doesn't even matter. It's, it's a whole different thing because there's a preventative aspect when they're teenagers because you know, hopefully, a lot of them are virgins. But then when they get in their mid-20s and 30s, there's that, you know, I'm an adult now, I can deal with this, this is my body, and it's not a matter of pro-choice or pro-life or anything like that. But So how would you... How would you be able to communicate yeah. to a person in their 20s and 30s that, you know, you can't be, you can't be doing this? Yeah. Um, well, just first, you're, do I, yes, I agree that sex has become sport. I can answer that quickly. Um, but this larger question, I mean, sort of comes back to what we were saying earlier about 
repent, the issue here is repentance. The issue is not sex or not, you know, the issue is one of sort of repentance and faithfulness. And I guess I would say two things. First of all, um, I don't think that there is, is a, um, a sort of pastoral cheat sheet out there somewhere that provides um, sound bites of pastoral wisdom to be doled out uh, indiscriminately. Because I think so much of how we, and I, I don't mean to be evasive, but I think so much of how we talk about these issues really depends on how, like who are the people, what are our relationships like, etc. Um, I do think you named the, the elephant in the room when you said it's you know they say it's my body and I can do whatever I want because to me this this the incorrect thinking and incorrect behavior about sex is really a, what I would say is a second order issue. Um, one of the more primary issues is this thoroughgoing individualism that says, this is really none of your business as long as I'm a consenting adult interacting with another consenting adult. And it, it seems more pressing to me to target that issue to say, like, look, America does a lot about individualism, but in fact, in, in the Christian landscape, individuals are not the most important unit. The community is the unit. And, and I think some teaching about that before we sort of get to the teaching about sex or why is it, why can I tell you to tithe? You know, why is what you do with your money any of my business? Well, because it's not your money and because we're in a community together. Um, I will say, and Eric, how are we on time? Are we... we probably have time for two quick questions. Uh, All right, can I just tell a story first? You can do it. You Thank can you. Do you I want it, I, I, in the book, I quote, um, Quote at length an email from a friend of mine whom I call M, which is not his real name. Um, and M, uh, at the time he wrote me the email, was 25-year-old medical student. He became a Christian after college. He'd had plenty of sex before he became a Christian. He had plenty of it after he became a Christian. And he emailed me to say, basically, I met this woman at a coffee shop. You know, she's invited me over to her apartment on Friday night. I suspect that she's not inviting me over to play backgammon. You know, why shouldn't I go have sex with her? Um, and there are other things he says in his email that are interesting, but not immediately absent to our point. So I quoted at length in the book. But, well, I read the email, and I thought, you know, I just don't think that another lecture on, you know, the book of Genesis and the epistles of St. Paul is really what he's looking for at this moment. So I called him, and I said, M., I want you not to go to that one's house on Friday night as a favor to me. And I'm going to call you on Saturday morning and ask what you did. Now, A, he obviously could have lied to me on Saturday morning, though I don't think that he did. B, this is clearly not an endlessly sustainable strategy for me to say to him weekend after weekend, you know, please don't fornicate as a personal favor. But I think that that conversation between me and M was the beginning of us being real community to each other, or actually not the beginning of us being community to each other. It was the middle of us being community to each other, which is to say, I didn't start with him with a conversation about sex. Our relationship started years before that. And we had the type of intimacy and mutual authority in our relationship where we could even have that conversation because for years, you know, we went grocery shopping together and he picked me up from the mechanics when my 
oil was being changed and he had walk-in privileges at both my house and my now husband's house whenever he needed to do his laundry or wanted a meal. But after, so we, because we had a very thick relationship, if you will, then I was able to say to him, look, we have some authority in each other's lives and you trust me and I trust you. And so don't do this. That's not the place you can start though. Um, and I think a lot of us, because we do, we feel very strongly about this issue and we know that it is hurting people to engage in sexual sin. We feel urgent about it. We want to start there. But starting there, I think, almost never works. I think that's a, a place you can go relationally when you've laid some other groundwork. You have time for one quick question. Where's one quick question. Um, I have the microphone. And my quick question is this. Where are you? I'm over here. You can't see me because I'm hiding behind the podium. Hi. My quick question is this. Um, what's going on in co-ed dorms today, whether it's private colleges, public universities, whatever, is it's not a secret that you know, they're just, they're, I mean, to call them brothels or, I mean, that is not an exaggeration with the hooking up culture. Um, I guess I could let you comment on that openly. I'm wondering why you know, all the administration and the people who are supposed to be in charge are just turning a complete blind eye to this. Yeah, that's a great question. And I commend to you an article by Vegan Garayan that ran in Christianity Today. Eric, do you remember this article five months ago, maybe? I know how to spell Garayan. I don't remember. About five months ago? I want to say, if you go to the Christianity Today website um, and look up this article called, like, yeah. Dorms as Brothels or something, you'll find it. And it's an excellent... I have a few disagreements with Vegan in this article, but... On the whole, I think it's an, he raises precisely that question and traces historically what happened when the sort of in loco parentis codes of the 1960s vanished. And I'm, this is an urgent question for college administrators, and it comes back to our question of formation. I think the attitude on campuses now is that you can go screw around literally and figuratively for four years. You can rack up credit card debt. You can drink a lot. You can have a lot of sex. And then you can graduate and sort of put on a different set of clothes and become an adult. And I don't think it works like that. I think it is impossible to spend four years inhabiting a particular story and then think that you can just shuck it off like um, corn leaves. Uh, so I think it's an urgent question for college administrators. And again, it, co it comes back to, I think, a question of consumerism. I think the mindset on colleges today, Christian, secular, state, private, is that students and their parents are customers. And... The college is there to please them and satisfy them and entertain them rather than to form them. And I think that is a topic for a whole other talk, <laughs> but that, that is frankly disastrous for our, the future of our society. I mean, I know that sounds alarmist, but I, I see from my perspective as a faculty member that we are not encouraged to educate. We're encouraged to entertain. Um, and I think the sex piece is just one one larger piece of that. So I'm actually relatively pessimistic about it. On that, On that wonderful note, <laughs> thank you all very much.